Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie i samtal med Karin Olsson. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast. Jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. It's a great pleasure to sit here with you. And at first, I think I would like to give you a compliment on how you have wrapped up your hair today. I think it's very, very beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Could you tell me about how you done it? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, um, yeah, my, my hair underneath, I don't know if you can see bits of it. It's very interesting. It's done with thread and I had done it because I was hoping to frighten some people. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little strange and frightening. No, it's it's quite easy for me to do this. This is what I did because I didn't have much time when I was getting ready. Okay. So I wrap it up. I do it so quickly. Often it's it's. Uh, I mean, I grew up being used to uh, wrapping my hair. Yeah, I understand. But actually, hair plays quite a significant part in your new novel, Amrukana, and. Um, We will get back to that, but first I think I would give just a short resume of what this book is about, just to give us some common ground here. And the leading character is Ifemelu, and uh, the love of her life, Obinze. Um, And she is a talented and strong Nigerian middle-class woman, Uh, not from the so wealthy middle-class, but still. This loving couple are tragically separated when she moves to the U.S. for study. Um, And um, when she comes to the U.S., she not only lives the love of her life, she also gets aware of her blackness. And this plays a very big part in the book. Uh, And one of the greatest political symbols, I think, in this book is is, uh, the question of Afro-textured hair and white hair. And a lot of pages in this book take places at hair salons. Could you tell me why you choose this symbol? <laughs> well, because I'm interested in hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's true, I am. And also, be, I'm interested in hair as hair, but, but I'm also interested in hair, particularly when I say hair, I should really say I mean the women's hair, and in particular black women's hair. Because I think, and, and I've often said half in chest, that it's political, and I think in, in an extent it's true. Um, and so if Michelle Obama, for example, who is a woman I deeply admire, decided to go natural, which means stop using relaxers or straighteners, mm-hmm. and sort of appeared one day with a big afro, yeah. it would be a huge thing in America. And if <laughs> And if that happened when Obama was running for president, he would lose. <laughs> it's true. Because the, there would be a lot read into that. It wouldn't just be that she likes her hair the way it grows on her head. It would be that she's a black panther, or she's a militant, or she's strange. I mean, the idea, I think, I'm interested in hair because it seems to me that hair often just isn't hair, that we read things into hair. I think for white women, often it's, it's the subject of coloring, right? So the, the, the women who choose not to color their hair, sometimes people will think, oh, they're very organic, or mm. 
you know, um, <laughs> maybe they don't trust big corporations and they, they like yoga and they're a bit strange. Yeah. Right? And, and you can imagine if it's a, a woman who wanted to get a, get a job in the media, for example, mm -hmm. and she, she decided she just didn't want to color her hair and, and let the gray show, it probably would be a problem. Yeah. Right? No matter how talented she was. And I think for, for um, black women, and I mean this for all over the world, not just, not just in the West, and it's important, I think, for me to say this because it's probably worse in Nigeria where the standard of beauty has become so narrowly defined that hair has to be straight and long, and that's what we've decided femininity is. And when you're born and your hair doesn't look like that, doesn't grow like that from your scalp, then you have to figure out how to get it to be like that. So from the time you're a child, you have people using hot combs on your hair, you have relaxers that burn your scalp. When I was very young, I used to look forward to having my hair straightened with a hot comb. And it didn't matter that sometimes it burned my ears or my neck. I loved what happened at the end, which is that my hair was straight. And when I think about it now, I think it's quite absurd that a seven-year-old, eight-year-old would be willing to tolerate that kind of pain just to have straight hair. And um, so, you know, it's all of those things. I wanted to write about hair. I wanted to write about also just the really wonderful culture of African hair breeding salons in the US, the fascinating places. And the things that have, the bits in the book that's set in, in, um, in the hair salon have actually come from my experiences and many other people's experiences. So you go there, there's, it's a subculture. They're mostly Francophone women. Um, there's somebody who, there's a hierarchy. There's somebody who owns the salon. There's other people who sort of are subservient. The kids are around, it's usually very filthy. Um, the bits of unfinished food and that sort of thing. So often quite disgusting to me. And, and it's just really wonderful to observe what goes on there, and also to observe what, for me, is a kind of identity formation, even in that space, that when I go in there as a Nigerian, there's a sense in which they look at me and we have a shared Africanness. And when somebody who's not African comes in, there's a different energy, and it's very interesting to watch. So I wanted to write about that as well, mm. I think it's... Uh, when Ifemelu, when she, she develops in the book, her hair mm. also develops, you mm. know? When she comes to the US, well, she doesn't think about it, then she becomes aware of her hair. And when she w wants to try to get a job later on after the studies, she straightens it um, to be accepted. And then she, like getting an afro, she starts a blog about race and she writes about oils and um, um, all the kind of products for your hair. And I was so amused thinking about this white translator, this uh, elderly man writing, he must have been, uh, had a good time, you know, finding out about all these things. I have so many questions for him. <laughs> I want to know how he fared, um, <laughs> and I'm full of admiration that he um, yeah. managed to <laughs> to get it done. Yeah. But it, I think it's, you know, and, and for me, one of the things I, I love to hear since the book came out is from people who've said to me, I never thought about black women's hair before, and now when I see women, I'm sort of looking at them thinking, is that a weave? Is that? And it makes me very happy yeah. because I, I feel as though I have... Um, I've educated the world on a very important subject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some resemblances between you as a per private person and the main character in this book. You have acknowledged some of them, uh, but you can see, if, if you read the, uh, your biography, 
And, and, and if you read this book, you can see that, okay, you both went to the US, you both studied the same university, you studied more or less the same subjects. Um, and when I've heard interviews with you, sometimes I can see echoes of what you've said as a private, as a writer, uh, that Ife Melu says the same thing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> She's not me. You know, it's interesting that it's, um, I get asked this question often, yeah, actually. And in Nigeria, I don't get asked, I get told. Okay. So Nigerians tell me this is you, yeah. and, and it doesn't matter that I say it's not me. I, I mean, but, but it's true, though. It, it's easy to write about what you know. And, and for me, I, it's very important for me to, write, to bring a certain authority to, to what I write about. So I, I don't feel comfortable writing about cities if I haven't lived in them. And so because of that, I often write about the places where I've lived because I know them. And in the US, I wrote about where I lived because it's just easy to write about where you know. Her, and of course the school as well. And I've stolen many things from my life, but, but her experiences are not mine. I mean, my, my experiences were much milder. Um, my life is not as interesting as if Emelo's really. I think in some ways, writers, when we do base our stories on ourselves, it's not so much what happened to us, it's what we wish had happened to us. And there's a sense in which I really admire Ifemelo and some of the things that she goes through I wish had happened to me. But sadly, my life was just boring, so now <laughs> I, I'm making it up here. Right? This is the alternative life I wish I had. But I think the, um, we share some of you know, her, her views on the blog, for example, and the kind of the playfulness of it, but also the seriousness of it. I think it's very much me. I, I share many of her opinions about, about how absurd race is, how funny, um, how important, um, and the way that she, I think she's a character who, you know, she's a character who speaks her mind. And I think in some ways I was raised to say what I think, which I realized later isn't something that many females are raised to do. And, I wanted to, I think Ifemelo, one of the things I wanted to do with her, she's a character I admire. She's not me, but I admire her. I think she's a much more interesting version of me. And I wanted to play with gender a bit. I didn't want her to be the kind of, I think what we've come to expect of female characters is that they somehow be likable and that we, we find it easy to somehow identify with them. And I've often, pushed back against this because I think that what it does is that it homogenizes what femaleness is in a novel, if that makes sense. So in the novel, I wanted her to be the person who does the things we expect men to do or, or that we forgive men if they do. So in a relationship, if a man cheats, we, we kind of expect it. So there's a sense in which it's not news. But if a woman does, there's a lot more judgment. And especially if she does for no reason. Because often um, we say women cheat because they feel lost or they feel ignored, and men cheat just because. And so if Emily cheats just because, and she's also the character who, she's in a good relationship with a good man, but she destroys it. So a person who, who dis, who, who's, who, who's destructive in many ways, who, so she's strong, but she's also very vulnerable. She's also very unsure of herself, and that she manifests that by sort of striking out. And I was interested in her because of that. And particularly, you know, I just thought, I had fun writing a woman doing those things. I think she's a great feminist role model, mm. uh, because, you know, she's, she's very strong. She doesn't let anyone patronize her. 
she's honest, uh, and she knows what she wants in bed as well. <laughs> That's yeah. an important thing. That it is very important. I'm very yeah. interested in the, in the, I think the, the sexuality of women is often, um, we don't pay enough attention to it. It's, it's, it's again, and I say this, I, 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 do, I, I think it cuts across cultures, where somehow the woman's role is, is to satisfy the man. And, and also the woman's role is not to demand, right? And I wanted her to be different. And so there are many Nigerian women who say to me that they couldn't connect with her. Okay. Because she doesn't fit the mold. Mm. No, she's not shy. She's she talks not, openly about yeah. condoms yeah. and uh, about lust. Yeah. And uh, it would in in be interesting to hear you, to hear which country you have heard much, um, you know, th people that don't like this portrait. Is it the America or is it I know Nigeria? I know that many um, Nigerians and other African countries have heard back from readers, but also interestingly women, mostly women, not men. Men yeah. seem to be mostly okay with her, but women have a problem with her. And, and a lot of women have said to me we, they loved Obinze and they couldn't oh. stand Ifemelu. <laughs> really? Yes. I love Ifemelu. Yeah. Well, so do I, thank yeah. you. I, I love her, but, but I'm not that surprised. I mean, I, I don't want to be dishonest and say that I'm surprised by, by the response because I, I knew that she's not the mold. She's not, what, she's not what most women are raised to, to aspire to, which I think is a shame, right? And so it's not surprising to me that she... And also, for many Nigerian women, um, <laughs> when a woman said to me in Lagos, I really loved Obinze, but if Femelo is a marriage wrecker. <laughs> okay. And I, and I said to her, that's so interesting. What, why, why do you think she's a marriage wrecker? Don't you think that it took two people to make that decision? And she says, well, you know, men can't control themselves, so if she'd left him alone. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I found that very interesting. And I, I don't think it's, a, I think it's a view that many other people would share. Uh, in an article in Guardian, you wrote that you consider fiction more honest than memoirs. Mm -hmm. And I found that interesting because uh, we talked about the resemblances between you and the family. And mm -hmm. could you explain a bit about that uh, view um, mm -hmm. on memoirs versus fiction? Um, well, I, I think I should say that I just think that fiction has, has the, that the probability of, of a real honesty in fiction is higher than in memoir. But I think the memoirs that also are quite honest. I think for myself, if, I, if, if Americana had been about my experiences, I wouldn't be honest, I would lie. I would protect myself, I would censor myself because, and not just because of me, I would think about, oh my Lord, my father is going to read this. And I just wouldn't, I just couldn't. But, <laughs> but if it's fiction and it's not about me, there's just a freedom, there's a kind of, I, there's a possibility of a kind of radical honesty. I can really write about what I want to write about. And, and also, not just in using my stories, but also in using other people's stories, because I've borrowed a lot from my friends, my family, I'm constantly making notes, I'm constantly watching people and listening. And I couldn't imagine writing, writing about things that my friends or my family have said and actually using their real names. I just couldn't because I love them. And, and I don't think it's, you know, I think it's unethical and I would want to protect them. And um, yeah, but if I, if I then turned it around and decided to fictionalize it, then I'm free because I can really 
go there, so to speak. So yes, I, um, in general, I, I just find fiction a much more honest form. Uh, a Swedish writer called Anders Enmark once said that uh, we know a lot about how Africans die, but not so much on how they live. Mm. Uh, but it's said now that that is slowly changing. It's a lot of been, been written about the thriving economies of Africa and African pop culture. And, and maybe your books also is a part of that because we're big interested in, in them because we get new stories uh, from Nigeria and from the African everyday life. Um, how do you feel about that? Do, do you, do you, is it a wish of yours to be a new story about Africa? But because it's not so common to read about, you know, the African middle class and, mm. and their lives. Is it a wish? No. I mean, I, um, you know, I'm very happy to be read in places like Sweden. But much as I like Sweden, the, the Swedish readers are really not that important to dictate what I choose to write about. No, so. no, I didn't mean like that way, but I think this must be the case I also this with in the great States. Affection, but, um, but I mean, yeah, but also yeah. in America. Yeah, Americans I love and I'm very grateful that I'm read there, but I also don't start off thinking, Americans don't know this, therefore I shall educate them. No. no. What I start off thinking is I want to tell the stories that I want to tell. Yeah. I want to tell the stories that are familiar to me. And what's interesting, I think, is that. Um, so, of course, you're right in the sense that it's not the norm outside of Nigeria to, to have stories of middle-class Nigeria. But for me, it's the norm. It's all I know. It's the Nigeria I know. And it's the Nigeria I can write about with, with confidence. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm telling the stories. And I'm telling the stories that I care about. And what's wonderful is that I hope that somebody else will care about those stories. And, and so there's just a really lovely feeling when you've written a book and it means very much to you emotionally. And then somebody who knows nothing about you, doesn't share your background, manages to connect with that story. Now, th for me, that's, that's the magic of, um, of literature. Yeah. When I read your novels, it often strikes me how extremely sharp-eyed you are. Uh, it seems like you just, after a couple of minutes, can like decode a person and then describe them, that they are hypocritical, vain, or good-hearted, and um, after you get famous, have you noticed that people around you are kind of like afraid of you, <laughs> that you're like so, <laughs> with your x-ray, just scanning them? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this is really terrible. Yeah. I, I, it's absolutely terrible. I think people... Uh, I think people in general are much more guarded around me now because yeah. I've given myself away and now they know that. But even, even the guardedness I find interesting. So I'm, I, <laughs> I, I'm interested in people. I think that the, I think in general, sort of just to be, to, to generalize, that writers sometimes write from experience and observing the world and other times writers write from ideas and from other books, you know, so you, you build on other books. And I think I'm, I'm in the former, so I'm very interested in people. I'm extremely curious about people. And so it means I don't mind my business at all. And it means I watch people. So when I met you backstage, I immediately started <laughs> to imagine a life for you. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think I'm also fairly good at uh, sort of having a sense of people. And in my family, sometimes they tease me and they say that I'm a witch. It's a joke. Yeah. And they say, you're such a witch, because sometimes we'll meet somebody and I'll say to them, 
that guy is bad news. And then it turns out that he is bad news. So my, yeah. my family will say, my God, she's a witch. And, um, but I think, it's, I think maybe it's something I was born with. There's a certain, I don't know. It's also an ability, I think, for me to connect with people. I just, yeah, I like people. And I, I just wish people would be less guarded around me now. <laughs> and, and even my cousins. Now we're in gatherings in my family. Sometimes we're talking and then they'll turn to me and say, do not put that in your book. Uh. And it's terrible because, you know, I don't want them to be self-conscious. I don't want to. Mm. <laughs> but I think, though, the thing is, I do take from people's lives, but it's never quite people's lives. So in Americana, some of my friends have said to me, oh, I recognize myself. And I'm thinking, no, actually, that character wasn't based on you at all. So, so sometimes when you do base a character on somebody, they don't even know. And then when you don't, they think it's them. So it's, it, even though I'm stealing from their lives, I'm doing it with a, a bit of um, creativity. Yeah. <laughs> I steal creatively. Mm. Um, as we talked about before, race is one of the you know, big topics in, the, in this book. Mm. Um, and this is topic is, is not entirely new because you're writing about uh, uh, colonization and, and those sort of subjects too. But this is uh, contemporary. And uh, what what made you uh, do this? Write this book. When did you make the decision that this is important? I want to write about this. This is a story I want to tell. Oh, I don't know. I I don't know when I made the decision. I. I, I'm interested in race. I think because I came to the US, I was about, I was 19, and really hadn't thought of myself as black, and then get to the US and I discover that I'm black. And it sounds a bit <laughs> silly, but it is true in the sense that in Nigeria, we, we didn't identify on the basis of race. So it was ethnicity, it was religion. Um, I knew I was Igbo, I knew I was Catholic but I just didn't really think about race. And I think this is true for, I think this is true for most, um, not just Nigerians, but I, I would probably say West Africans. Um, I think if I'd been South African, it would be different, or Kenyan even, or Zimbabwean, because race is much more present there. And so when I went to the US, it was just a very strange thing. And, and for me, the particular story, when I realized that, not just that, and, and for me, it wasn't just that, I had become black. It's that black was an identity that came with many assumptions. So it was loaded with baggage. And for me as a Nigerian, I just found it very odd. And I remember when I was in a class, and um, it was my first class, the first essay we'd written for an English class in college, and um, we'd sent in the essays by email, and the professor came in and with the papers, and he said, this is the best essay in class. Who is, and he called my name, and he wanted to know who wrote the best essay. And so when I raised my hand on his face, I was surprised. <clears throat> and, and it was a very small moment, but it was very telling, because then I realized he doesn't expect the person who wrote the best essay to be black. Because I suppose in his experience as a teacher, his black students didn't write the best essays. And so I suppose it had come to become the self-fulfilling thing where the black kids just didn't write the best essays, and so he looked surprised. And for me as a Nigerian, I thought, how silly. And I remember thinking, well, I've come from Nigeria, he must know that we're all brilliant in Nigeria. <laughs> and, 
but but it was it was you know it's one of those tiny moments that you you look back and then you you realize yes that's really when I started to understand what it meant, and I've been curious about it all of the permutations of race how um, how people are uncomfortable about it how how in particular in America it's become it, it's the language of race has become very interesting. So Americans are so uncomfortable about race because they have such a brutal history of race that, I mean, when you think about it, it was just in 1965, it's not that long ago, that African-Americans really became full legal citizens of the United States, right? I mean, 100 and more years after slavery. But th the language has become so encoded that people say other things when they mean race. And, and I find it fascinating. Can you give some example? So politically, um, when politicians talk about such things as states' rights in America, it's often very racially coded. They're really talking, or when they talk about, um, if a politician is running for office and he starts talking about, um, oh, we need to do something about the crime rates, he's really saying something about the black neighborhoods in the inner cities. When in in liberal, kind circles, when people talk about culture, often they mean race. Mm -hmm. So when they say, oh, it's, you know, it's just a different culture, they really mean race. And it's interesting because when I, as, as a foreigner watching, I'm thinking, actually, the culture isn't that different. You're all Americans, right? What's different is that your skin color is different. But race is something that so, people are so uncomfortable about it. And, and even to describe a person, I remember, and I actually used this in the book, a friend of mine, um, this didn't actually happen to me, it happened to a friend of mine, but she said that she had um, her boss, who was a, a white woman, and who was a lovely white woman. I think it's important to say this because it's not about evil people or terrible people. It's, it's that there are things that just make us uncomfortable and, and there's a way of doing things that seems easy and we take the easy route, right? So this woman, is kind and well-meaning, and when she wants to talk about black people, she just can't say black, so she says beautiful. Oh. So, <laughs> so she would say to my friend, um, oh, I have this beautiful <laughs> colleague, and then once she said, I have this beautiful nanny, my children's nanny, is just this beautiful woman from Trinidad. And, and then finally, my friend met the nanny, and the nanny was Definitely not beautiful. <laughs> and, and then my friend realized, oh, this is actually code for black. But you don't want to say black because you're uncomfortable. Mm. So then my friend said, and I, I really I borrowed this from her. Mm. She said to her boss, you know, it's okay. Not all black people are beautiful. Mm. Right? And, and, and I think it's, it's very interesting because, you know, it, it, so again, it's about all of those small uncomfortable, strange things. And, and again, the things that we don't talk about. So I wanted to write a book about the things we don't talk about. And, and I wanted to make fun of them. And I wanted to laugh at them, but also at the same time to, to say something about a serious subject that is also worth laughing at. Yeah. <clears throat> Actually, I have a great sense of humor. And you know, all, I laugh all the time when I read, when I read uh, uh, Americana. And I laughed about, you know, Ifemelo, she gets a black American boyfriend called Blaine, and he's surrounded with these right, self-righteous academics that you call them believers, and they drink organic, organic juices, and it's very funny described. <laughs> and it's probably because I recognize these people around <laughs> me, but I also uh, laugh at, you know, the nouveau riche of Lagos. Mm. 
And I think that's so amazing that you, you, they are not caricatures, but they are also kind of, you have a, a warmth when you write mm. about these people mm. and still, it's so funny. You, you, I can laugh at them, but I still don't have to feel like a, a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me very happy. That was yeah. the hope. I mean, I, I think I, I think there's also a, a, a large amount of self-mockery in the book. I yeah. mean, there's, because I'm also making fun of myself. I mean, the, the, the people who drink organic juice are my friends. I recognize them. I like organic juice. But I sometimes sit back and I just think, oh my Lord. Right? <laughs> that, I mean, there's a whole world out there that doesn't care about organic pomegranate <laughs> juice. It's ridiculous. Or, or my friends will spend time talking about you know, local farming and how terrible it is that the bananas got ripe on trucks from Mexico. And there's a part of me that I kind of identify, but then there's another part of me, and I suppose that's the very, that's the part, I grew up in Nigeria. Th these are really not my fights. And what I'm thinking is, as long as the banana tastes good, I really don't see what the problem is, right? But, yeah. but it's, it's um, <laughs> and I laughed a lot writing the book. I think, it, I think the tone is quite different from my, my previous work. I, I think, for me, there was a, a willingness to, to be playful, um, and, and even in poking fun at Nigeria, it's also very familiar. It's a loving kind of fun. I mean, those people, are, I know them. And, and actually, a number of them have said to me, that was me, or that was my brother, that was my uncle. And, and some people have said, oh, you were making fun of us. And I said, yes, that's the whole point <laughs> I was. But also making fun of myself, because it's my circle. These are the people I know. But, but I think it's important. I think a certain level of... Um, you know, I guess not taking oneself too seriously. I mean, while enjoying the pomegranate juice, to be aware that there is an inherent absurdity to it because there are people in the world for whom the most important thing is not whether or not a drink is organic, is whether or not there is a drink in the first yeah. place, right? Um, yeah, so I... And the Nigerian... There's, there's a certain slice of the Nigerian wealthy that I find fascinating. Mm. And, um, yeah, I actually plan to write more about them. I was just at a gathering with many of them, and I was just watching them and making notes on my phone. And <laughs> yeah. But the critics, they don't, they don't so often mention that you're so funny. Which why is a shame. Yeah, I, why is that? We need to talk to them. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Maybe it's I not think, I think, I think, I mean, I don't read reviews for, just because I, I don't want to, you know, I want to keep my sanity. But I think in the U.S., um, I think it's, it's, I think particularly in the US actually, race is not something people feel comfortable laughing about. No. So you say something and you can see people thinking, can I laugh? Mm. Because it's so loaded. And, and there's just, the, the, there's such a high possibility of offending somebody that, and, and both black and white, they're thinking, you know, should I laugh? Is this okay? And I think, that often there's a tendency to take things much more seriously than they are. So the people who've come to talk to me about this book, and they go on and on, and I'm thinking, you, it's, you're being a bit too serious. I mean, you can actually have a <laughs> sense of humor about yeah. it. But, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be flippant. I understand where, it, I, I think if I had been an American, I would not have written this book. I think if I, th there's a sense in which there's a privilege to my being a foreigner. And, and my ability to laugh at race in itself, I think is a privilege because, yeah. And so I understand that kind of, if I had that history, I think I would feel the same way. And, and for me, there's something very sad about it. But if you make the same like jokes, the, the examples you tell, like you just told, can you tell them in front of an American audience and get the same laughs as here tonight? It, it depends. 
Um, and, and I find that the more, so when I, I've, so I, when I taught for the book in the US, Yes, I was happy to find that people did laugh, but not all the time and not, not in all the places. So when the audiences were mostly African-Americans, they laughed. When the audiences were mostly um, white people, often they would laugh. When the audiences were mixed, there would be less laughter. Oh. And, and I think it's just that discomfort that people feel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when Americans are described in this book, and mostly white Americans, it's often that these students are lazy and they lack ambition and they surf on the internet when the professor is speaking. Uh, and when the, when the Nigerians are described, they are, they are more like hungry, uh, ambitious. Uh, um, and I saw this also as a story about the decline of America and the rise of other parts of the world. Mm. What do you think about that interpretation? I think it's interesting. I, yeah. I don't think I thought about it. It's, uh... Hmm. Well, I don't know. I, I think the Americans who surf the internet while they're... So these are very privileged students at Yale. Yeah. And I think it's less about being lazy and lacking ambition and more about a sense of entitlement. Yeah. So they're in one of the best schools in the world. They're surrounded by all kinds of privileges. And after class, they can go to an event and say hello to Bill Clinton and that sort of thing. And I think there's a sense of, oh, we know it all, and you know, we're just too wonderful. So we won't listen to you, we'll just look up something on the internet. And, 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 and this struck me, because I did spend time at Yale, and, and I've sort of observed the, the privileged American enclaves. And there's a kind of, it's often a very self-righteous entitlement. It's, um, and I wanted to, I wanted to try and, and kind of capture that. But I, do, I, I shouldn't say American. It's not just American. It just happens to be that I know the American version. And so I, I don't know that it's about the decline of America. I don't think America, all of this talk about America declining, I, don't, I think cultural power is really what matters in the world. And America has enormous cultural power. So it doesn't matter that, that America is in debt and China you know, owes, um, I don't know, three quarters of American debt, um, which, by the way, I think is wonderful, good for China. But... <laughs> I, I admire, there's a lot I admire about the Chinese, I just have to say, I just really, there's a sense of sort of doing their own thing, that even if I don't necessarily agree, I admire. But um, America has cultural power, I mean, everybody, it, it, and I think that's the power that's actually really important, that's what really matters. The American cultural productions are, are worldwide. American celebrities are world celebrities. Everybody in the world looks up to America. You know, so, so young people from, from Nigeria and Ghana and Kenya to, to Finland and Italy and Spain, they want to go to New York City. They, you know, America's just this thing. And I think America's managed to do that because of its cultural power, because, mm. because we, you know, we, we watch the films and we... Um, so I don't think, I, I, if anything, it's not so much about the decline of America. I think what I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to poke fun at it a little. Um, yeah. And also that they're different Americas, right? That for me as an outsider, my America is different. And, and that for immigrants, I mean, and I think it's not just Nigerians, there is a hunger in many, America is, a, for many people, still very much the land of opportunity, the land of possibility. And um, I know many Nigerians who, who, you know, when, if, they, if they have the ability to go to Europe, they will take it, but only as a stepping stone to America. 
So they'll say, all right, I'll go to you know, Sweden, for example. And then maybe when I'm in Sweden, I'll figure out a way to get a visa to America. So America mm -hmm. is sort of the final destination. And, and, and I also understand why. There's something about the US that um, there's a sense of, of space where you, you're free to reinvent yourself. There's, and I think also because it's not an old country and so it doesn't have, it's not burdened in the way that Europe is burdened by its history, by its ancient history. I mean, I think America is burdened by its more recent history. And so I think people are more just, um, there's just a greater sense of possibility yeah. you can. But Ife Miller, she actually returns home. Yeah. And people are quite surprised. She's doing very well in the US. Her race blog is, huge and she earns a lot of money and she has great boyfriends and um, yeah but still she returns home yeah and uh, we know that there are big uh, Nigerian diaspora and uh, there have been many articles written about the brain drain of Nigeria but if a male returns home yeah um, there is actually what's been happening in the past I'll say maybe six or seven years is that it's not so much of a brain drain now. In some ways, there's a kind of brain gain. People are moving back. Yeah. And it's one of the things I wanted to write about, this, this, this movement back, which really started with the credit crunch in the West, when people lost their jobs, and suddenly Nigeria became an option again. And, um, and I think also it also has an idealistic element. There are many young people who just want to go back and who think you know, they want to go back and give back. And so now in Nigeria, there's, and I also kind of make fun of them in the book, there's a class of returnees, They're the people who spend a lot of time in Lagos complaining about how they can't find a decent smoothie in the city or how, you know, how the salads are just terrible. And, um, and I have to confess that I'm one of the people who sometimes will complain about salads in Lagos. <laughs> um, but, but, but so there's that. And, if Emily isn't quite, I think in, in her case, I wanted her motivations to be a lot more internal. She's, she's unsatisfied. And there's just this sense of dissatisfaction that's, that's almost spiritual, it's deep-seated. So she has the things on the outside, but, but there's something missing. And I think that something is a sense of just truly belonging. She wants home, and, and she goes home, and I think it, it doesn't really matter what happens with Ubinze. It's about homecoming. It's about finding home again. And yeah, and, and she does. M many other people who move back, I don't think it's quite that kind of yearning. I think it's just more practical. Yeah. And, um, and for many of them, if they have been educated in the US or in England or, or wherever, they are more likely to be hired as expatriates in Nigeria, which means higher salaries. And because you know, many, of, many of the multinational companies consider Nigeria a hardship placement. Um, which means that you get much more. So these Nigerians are quite happy to be expatriates in yeah. their own country. Because and you're describing a, a booming economy as well, yeah. you know, banks and mobile companies, um, a lot of money f floating around. Yeah, yeah, okay. floating around sadly into few hands. But yes, in Nigeria, Nigeria has always been a very strange place because because there's always been enormous money in Nigeria, but it's always been concentrated into a few hands. I think what's happened in the past maybe 10 years with, um, is that there's a, there's a bit more of a, we, now we have another, we have a growing middle class again, which we did before the military dictatorships, which for me is just a wonderful thing. And young people, so it's, you know, things are better in the sense economically, but I think there's still a large, large, vast um, slice of, of, of the population that's, um, that's still left out. 
Um, I'd like to ask a question about how you have written this book, because a special thing about it is that you have printed like blog posts, long yeah. blog posts from Ifemelu's blog. And they are quite, you know, they are sharp and political and really outspoken. Um, were you ever afraid to be um, too much of a teacher? No. Uh, no. Why did you choose this way of, of telling the story? Um, I wanted to. I, I don't. I, I think it also has something to do with the tradition. I, I'm very proud to be part of this tradition of, of particularly Nigerian writing, but I think in general, sub-Saharan African writing, which and Chino Achebe, who is a writer I absolutely um, adore, has written and talked a lot about the writer's teacher and how much of modern African literature has started from a place of not only wanting to entertain, but wanting to educate. And I think for me, fundamentally, there is a desire, even as a reader, that I want to be instructed and I also want to be delighted by a book. And so I, I don't shy away from... Um, I think there's something quite old-fashioned in my taste in literature. I love the novel Middlemarch. And Middlemarch is quite instructive about many things. Middlemarch doesn't hide its intentions. Um, so the blogs, I mean, I had a lot of fun writing them, and at some point I had to rein myself in because I, there were many, many more posts that <laughs> could make it into the book. Um, and it was that I would read something or talk to people and think, yes, I'm going to use that. Or, um, and, but, I, but I think it's not, I mean, my hope is that clearly there's, I mean, it's not so much being a teacher, it's more that I'm not being um, apologetic or shy about, but, but I also like to think that there's room for the reader to disagree. I mean, the, the assumption is not that the reader is on my side. The assumption is that I'm, I'm laying this out there and I'm hoping that, you know, that the reader will bite or not. So, so no, I don't, um, I've had some people say to me, well, you know, they, you, you really should have written essays instead. And I'm thinking, no, this is what mm. I wanted to write. Yeah. <laughs> Chino Achebe, he, he died yes. earlier this year. Could you tell us a bit about what he meant to you? And he, um, I, he just, he's the writer whose work is most important to me. And I deeply admired him as a man as well. I, I, I think he was a man of such integrity. And, and um, I met him only once properly. We, did, we had a very small conversation because I was terrified. I grew up reading him. I adored his novels. Um, and I've read them so many times, I know almost everything <laughs> in them, as did many people. I mean, what I love about Achebe in particular is that not only is he loved by Nigerians, by Africans, he's actually read. People across class, across culture read him. And um, so I read him when I... You know, I read, when I read Achebe, I hadn't really read many other African books. And so for me, it was the sense of validation that he brought. And, and particularly also because he was Igbo like me. And he was writing, and these people had names that were familiar to me that I hadn't really seen in literature. Even though at the same time, they were kind of exotic because, you know, it was Igbo land a hundred years ago and there were things that were strange. But, and uh, yeah, so he gave me, I like to say that he gave me permission to tell my own stories. And then later, when, when I just started to read more of his writing, I just came to, the, 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 he, he occupied a place of just a, a kind of sparkling integrity. He spoke his truth. He didn't pander. Achebe didn't pander, and I just really admire that. And um, 
and you know, and I think for many people in Nigeria, and I think also in Africa, he came to kind of speak for us. And I think that's a very wonderful thing. I, I meet people from Kenya, from Zimbabwe, um, from you know, Liberia, and, and we have Chino Achebe in common because they read him and, and because for them, his novel was also a way of giving a kind of dignity to their past. And I find that very powerful. Yeah. And, um, Is yeah, it true that you cried for a whole day when you heard that he liked half of a yellow sum? I don't know about a whole day, <laughs> but... <laughs> um, I did cry, yes. I, I was very moved. I was also very surprised because... You know, I think it's just uh, you, you admire somebody and, and, and part of the reason I didn't know him well is I didn't want to. I didn't want to meet him. I just, I avoided it for a long time. And so when, when I heard that he'd read Half of a Yellow Sun, my, my editor had sent him the book and she hadn't told me. And so I just, I was just in... Um, it's a strange thing. It's one of those moments that you can't describe. It was very close to bliss. And, and my tears were tears of joy, I should say. Um, Oh. And it was just a really lovely feeling. It's, it's, I think one of the things about being a writer is you, there's certain people... Um, I mean, I suppose, in general, we, we want our work to be liked, right? I do. But I don't need my work to be liked by everyone. But, but there's certain people who, if they like my work, it, it just means something to me. And Chino Achebe is very high up on that list. Actually, Chino Achebe and my father uh, occupy the same space on okay. that list. And um, mm. so their approval means... It just means, it means very much. As we talked about, you describe most people very unsentimental and sharp-eyed, and uh, but with love, I feel it's another thing. You know, mm. you have you are more romantical um, about love, <laughs> and this love story um, between Obinza and Ifemelo, it's very strong and it's very romantic, and uh, it's it's kind of a different feeling around the love. <laughs> it's 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 not. It's not the same tone as the yeah. other prose, I think. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah. Well, I won't argue with that. I, okay. It might be true. Yeah, um, uh, yeah I, I like love. I, yeah. I, I think that... And I wanted... I think it's also because I wanted to... And this was quite intentional. I wanted, I wanted to do something very old-fashioned. You know, like I said, there's the, I am drawn to a certain kind of old-fashioned... And, and, and I think also because I think we live in a time today where not only is the world globalized, and, but we're supposed to be very ironic about love. You know, there's a sense in which cynicism and irony are expected of modern writers, especially when it comes to relationships. And, and I don't find it very attractive. I think there's still a part of me that I think we can be cynical about organic pomegranate juice, but, but not about love. I think that there's still something just deeply, deeply human and important. And so I wanted to do that kind of lush, just incredible love. And, and the ending of the book, I, I quite enjoyed writing it. And, um, and <laughs> Shouldn't spoil it. Though. Oh, I wouldn't no. spoil it. But the, I've had, I've, I had a reader say to me that she was surprised. She said, you know, the ending surprised me. I don't think I liked it because, and I said to her, I loved it. <laughs> Because I wanted it to be just lush and just... Oops, I don't want to give it away, so... Yeah, but I think it's, it's the love story that's so universal. You know, even in, in 100 years, many of this race question might be different or people won't recognize themselves, maybe. But the love story will still I agree. be there. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Since we're in Stockholm, I'd like to mention the Nobel Prize in Literature. 
you have been writing uh, short stories as well. Um, you had your literary breakthrough with a short story, I believe. The Harmattan Morning, you got a prize for that. Huh, right. Or, yeah. Have you read ago. Alice Munro? Yes, yes. Do you like her? Yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I love that. I was very happy that she, she was recognized. I, and I think also because she does short stories, which I think is a really interesting, fascinating form, which often people think is somehow the sort of the younger sibling of the novel, right? So they'll say, all right, you're doing short stories because you're walking up to the novel. But it's, they're very hard to do. And I think her kind of stories, I like that her stories are, are real stories, if that makes sense. They're not, they're about, she, she has something to say. And, and I say this again because there's a lot about contemporary writing where the stories are just sort of, at the end of it, you're thinking, for me, half the time, I'm like, I don't care. I don't even know what this was about. Mm. And, and her stories are different. And um, there's a density to them. They're like little novels, really, which I, which I admire very much. So, and, and I was quite pleased that she, um, that she was recognized. And also, I have to say, very pleased that she's a woman. Yeah. Um, yeah. But actually, you mentioned uh, one other woman in the book that has got a Nobel Prize. Yes. And I was quite surprised when I saw that name, Selma Lagerlöf was mentioned in Americana. Yes. And why? You must tell me. <laughs> How did her name get there? Well, at, at some point, some years ago, I had sort of gone into, I realized that I, I hadn't read many women, which sounds, but really I hadn't. So then I went back and I sort of did some research and I, I made up a long list of women writers I wanted to read and her name was in the list because she, I knew that she'd won the Nobel Prize. And I read one book and um, and when I was writing Americana, I just, I mean, in, in the context, it's funny because Shan, the character who brings her up, is, is kind of poking fun at the idea that if you're African-American or black, all the writers you're supposed to like have to be black. And so she, <laughs> so she's talking about going to an event and she's being asked, who do you love? And she's supposed to talk about, you know, James Baldwin and, and Ralph Ellison. And she just pulls these names, so she says, you know, she pulls the Swedish woman out, she pulls the, <laughs> the Japanese man, she pulls that. And, and suddenly these people are confused because she's not following the path that they have mm. planned for her. And I think maybe it was just my way of saying that, um, you know, I love many writers. Literature for me is this wonderful, diverse room. The writers who have been important to me have been like me in the way that Chino Achebe is, but also have been very unlike me. Edith Wharton is important to me. And I'm actually going to go back and read because I, I, I was trying to remember because I know I did read one book. And I think, <clears throat> I think... It's the book with the crazy priest. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember if you liked it or? I think I liked it. Yeah. I, I don't think I loved it, but no. I remember. Um, <laughs> but but I've been actually now. Now I'm going to go back and. Um, okay. And read more. And um, I don't know about the rest of the world, but at least in Sweden, you nowadays are mentioned as a possible receiver of the Nobel Prize in the future. You're quite young. How do you feel about that? Or do you feel suffocated? Or do you feel inspired? Or don't you want to hear anything about it? Or? I don't even know about it, so no. I, don't, I don't have a feeling about it. You know, I mean, I don't really think about those things. I, um, I feel like I'm, I've been very lucky, right? I feel like I've been, because if I hadn't been fortunate enough to be read, 
And to be sitting here and all of these wonderful people have taken out their time to come and sit and listen to me talk, which is still very odd. I, I would still be writing. I mean, I would be somewhere probably unemployed or maybe in my parents' home in Nigeria, but I would be writing because it's actually what I love. It's, it's, um, when it's going well, it makes me so happy. It's what I deeply, deeply care about. So the, the, the publishing part, I feel very grateful for, but it's very separate from the writing part. And so when people in Nigeria, people will say to me, oh, you've won all these prizes. How does it feel? I don't remember. I don't wake up and remember that I won the Orange Prize. I wake up and I'm thinking, I want to write and I want it to go well and I want it to make me happy. So I, um, I really don't... Uh, and, you know, I think prizes are very good, but they're also quite... I mean, they're not always, but they're also often the political considerations, they're all kinds of things. And um, for me, really, what I want is to be read. I, I want to be read. I want other people, I, I want other human beings to connect to my stories. And for me, that's the, if, if that happens and that keeps happening, I'll be very happy. I know you've done a lot of interviews today with Swedish papers and other Swedish media, and you're out on a promotion tour in the northern of Europe. Yeah. And I'm curious, what... Do you get funny questions, or do you, you know the race question is so different here from then in the U.S. And what, what kind of yeah. what do you laugh at when you go home to your hotel room? <laughs> <laughs> I send I have a, I send texts to my family. I have mostly in Nigeria, in England, and in the U.S. And we have a text group, so we so I'm constantly giving them updates about the strange people. And so when I was in <laughs> Finland, I sent many texts about the terrible food. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. In case there are Finns here, Helsinki was nice, but yeah, the food just, I, so I sent, um, I, I think, is there a Finn here? <laughs> I liked Helsinki, but not yeah. the food. Yeah. But um, I, I think, yeah, it is interesting actually. And I mean, it's exhausting, but, but I, the, in many ways I, I enjoy it as well, because I do enjoy learning about other people and their lives. And I've, I've been learning a lot about Scandinavian tribalism, for example. So it's fascinating to me how, so for example, how the Swedes are kind of supposed to be the slightly superior ones, the cultured ones, and, um, and the Finns look up to them, and then the Swedish-speaking Finns are somehow supposed to be slightly culturally superior because they're Swedish-speaking. Mm. And, and I find it fascinating. And, and also the kind of... Um, you know, in some ways, the Norwegians are sort of like the, the forest people who suddenly made a lot of money. <laughs> and, now, <laughs> and now people are kind of, you know, people think, yeah, the Norwegians, they're a bit backward, but they have money, so now we're going to walk in that country. Yeah. So it's, it's, I am fascinated by it. And I'm, so half the time when I'm doing interviews, I'm actually asking the questions because I'm, I'm yeah. interested. But I think in general, people in, in I think, when it comes to race, I think there's an assumption with many Europeans that race is a problem Americans have, mm -hmm. and it's not their problem. And, um, and I think this is true for, for this part of Europe. I think it's also true for, for France, for example. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's false. I think that, that race is a problem that, that many of these societies have. But America, it's easy to, to accuse America, because America's... Um, racial history and racial present is so much more overt. But yeah, so, so often journalists will say to me, oh, race, it's... And I say to them, well, let's talk about race in your country. Um, yeah. a, a journalist in, in Paris yeah. said to me, oh, you know, we don't really, we don't really recognize race in France. 
And, oh, really? Wow. And our president is just, he, he wants to, when, when Francois Hollande came into power, the first thing he wanted to do was, was to change the language of race in some sort of legal code or something because they wanted to remove race because, you know, in France, it's all about egalité. And, and so, you know, I thought it was so interesting because I said to her, you know, a few days ago, I was at the metro station in Paris and the policemen there and they're checking identity cards and they only ask the black people. Yeah. And I said, that is race. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's strange that you can somehow say we don't recognize race, but of course you do. Of course, every society does. Mm. And it, it depends on how they deal with it. And race can also be, I think, increasingly in, in, our, in this world that we're living. It's also very much about the kind of racialized religion, so, so Islam. You know, Islam that's really become much more than a religion. It's really become a race. And I think for people who look like they might be Muslim or for women who are covered, I think they also go through that sort of, there are all of these assumptions mm -hmm. and, and they experience things differently. So it's fascinating for me to, um, mm. yeah, I, I haven't quite, Sweden is still quite new. I haven't quite. Um, well, actually, I think that uh, Americana will be used a lot uh, in the cultural debate because we are discussing race and racism a lot at the time, mm. and race profiling, um, and the um, right-wing parties uh, gaining ground in the parliaments and so on. So these questions are really um, in the, it's really, really been talked about, this, this kind of subjects mm. in Sweden and in Norway that's recently elected a right-wing uh, yeah. populist party into the government. Yeah. So Who isn't he the equality minister? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is and the Minister of Integration as well. Right, it's so. very interesting. Yeah. The Minister of Integration who doesn't really think integration is a good thing. Yeah. Fantastic. So, but I mean, they only but I mean, like I, assimilation. So. I think, yeah, I, I mean, you know, on the one hand, I, I mean, looking at it objectively, I think that, um, you know, the, 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 there's that human urge to, to I think there's a fundamental conservative strain in many human beings that we want to keep things as they are. I think what worries me about, um, and I'm really interested in this rise of sort of right-wing nationalism in, in, in Europe, is that it's, it, it, there's a hostility, there's a viciousness to it that, that I find actually quite frightening and, and surprising. Because I think it's possible to, um, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I, I like live and let live. I think it's possible, in fact, for one to keep one's language and whatever and still kind of be fairly open-minded in a way that... I mean, I think also that Sweden prides itself on being very open-minded, doesn't it? I mean, the, the Swedes think yeah, that... Yeah, historically, absolutely, yes. Yeah. But I think that self-image is under discussion at yeah. the time. Yeah. So I think your book is coming at the right, right time. I'm very happy to be of service. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. So I think our time is out. Thank you so much, Chimamanda. Thank you, Karen. And thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. <laughs>